phenomenal where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to a special episode of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Special for two reasons. Firstly, it's our second anniversary show. And secondly, we're joining with people all around the globe to celebrate World Space Week. So if you're joining us from the World Space Week website, welcome on board and we hope you enjoy the show. Of course, the show wouldn't be the same without my partner in crime. So joining me from across the pond is John Berger. How's it going, John? Mark? M- Mark, is that is that really you? Mark? Mark, you're back! <laughs> yeah, I know it's been a while, but... It's been uh, a while. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have been putting bits and pieces out there. I mean, you probably know that by now. That if, if you've been listening to the show, uh, we put out a couple of TGP nominal extras, and we also did the Wickham Comic Con special where we put in the Star Wars questions and answers panel that they had at uh, Wickham Comic Con. I decided to put it in as a whole episode because it, it worked out to be about 45 minutes in total. That was enough to make another episode. <laughs> so how's it been going with you? Uh, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> or whatever Mark Twain said. That was one of his phrases. Yeah, he was known for his uh, very dry wit. <laughs> now, before we crack on with the show, let me tell you a little bit more about World Space Week and some of the highlights of the 2016 event. World Space Week is an international celebration of science and technology and their contribution to the betterment of the human condition. The United Nations General Assembly declared that in 1999 that the World Space Week will be held each year from the 4th of October to the 10th of October. These dates commemorate two events. On the 4th of October 1957, obviously, was the launch of Sputnik 1, opening the way for space exploration. And on October the 10th, 1967, was the signing of the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in Exploration and the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. Now, that wasn't easy to say. (laughs) (laughs) So, here are some of the highlights of the World Space Week for 2016. Some have already taken place, and some probably will be taking place by the time this episode reaches the podosphere. So far, we have had Lockheed Martin have held a deep space exploration virtual field trip event, (laughs) which sounds like fun. (laughs) You've also got the Science Foundation and European Space Education Resources Office, or SRO, in Ireland. They'll be organising moon workshops and there will be a Space Up Island on October the 8th. The Museum of Science and Industry in Florida will be hosting an afternoon with NASA astronaut Story Musgrave, answering questions from his 27-day EVA in space on October the 8th. Space Lectures here in the UK will be organising an event in Pontefract in Yorkshire. Scott and Mark Kelly, they'll be sharing their experiences and this will be on the 7th and 8th of October. As we speak, there is very limited availability. Tickets have been selling like hotcakes. 
IMAX will be showing space-themed blockbusters and documentaries between the 14th and the 20th of October at several AMC IMAX locations in the US. The Indian Space and Research Organization are organizing a two-day event to celebrate World Space Week on October the 9th and 10th with lectures and exhibition of ISRO products and technologies, drawing contests for school children and design challenges for engineering students. The Armar Planetarium in Northern Ireland um, held a digital theatre show on October the 4th. Brazil plans to host nationwide World Sp Space Week celebrations with 159 events, including astrophotography and several astronomy public sessions. Hundreds of Astrium employees will speak to schools this week in France, Germany and the UK. Teachers globally will be able to use Space Week to inspire children to learn more about the sciences and the STEM subjects and things like that, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. So uh, World Space Week is huge. I mean, there's countries that you wouldn't um, imagine will be taking part. Um, you know, countries like Ethiopia have got events going on. Sadly, I wish there was more of that coming in my area, but the problem is America's a ge geographically big country. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm sure there is stuff in my area, well, you know, relatively speaking. Well, if you, if you go to the World Space Week website, um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but if you just put in World Space Week, uh, there is an events list there showing you pretty much every country that's involved. So um, I, I'd imagine there is stuff pretty much everywhere you are right we will be right back after this once upon a time a spacecraft named rosetta was launched into the night sky a long long journey lay ahead of her to uncover the mysteries of our solar system Rosetta carried a little passenger, the lander, Philae. It had taken many, many years to dream up this mission. And now, Rosetta was on her way to the far-off comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko. Rosetta needed lots of energy to get there, and got some from Earth and Mars by flying around them, seeing some beautiful sights. Along the way, she also went to places spacecraft hadn't visited before. Rosetta found a diamond-shaped object, the asteroid Steins, and took amazing pictures for everyone on Earth to see. The diamond disappeared as Rosetta sped on. Further along the way, a giant appeared. Lutetia, an ancient rock 100 kilometers tall and 100 kilometers wide with big craters on the surface. Rosetta sent more pictures home of the amazing encounter. This was still only the beginning of the adventure, but far from the energy of the sun, Rosetta was very tired and needed to rest. Still traveling through space, she fell into a deep sleep. A sleep lasting for two years, seven months, and 12 days. But on the 20th of January, 2014, with the help of everyone on Earth shouting, Wake up, Rosetta! She opened her eyes and let everyone back home know she was okay. There was much celebration, and Rosetta's team quickly set to work 
checking her health after the long slumber. There was still a long way to travel to reach the comet, but Rosetta had plenty to do. There was no time to lose. All of the experiments that were packed on board had to be woken up, along with the lander, Philae. When they got to the comet, they would find out all about its surface and about the dust and gas around it. And the scientists back home would fit all these pieces together like a jigsaw puzzle to learn about how comets work. Before long, Rosetta was able to see the comet in the distance. She was getting closer and closer, but there were still many challenges ahead. The route to the comet was complicated and Rosetta had to carry out some difficult maneuvers. She had to change her speed to match the comets, otherwise she would fly past. One false move and she might not make it. There were 10 maneuvers to complete, but Rosetta was determined. As she checked them off one by one, the comet got closer and closer. It was the most wonderful sight that Rosetta had ever seen. There was only a little way to go now, but she knew that once she got there, there would be no time for rest. She and Philae had the most important jobs of their entire lives ahead of them. That was a, an extract from uh, a series of animations that Issa created to teach kids about the Rosetta mission. They're, they're quite remarkable little uh, animations, aren't they, John? They're adorable. That's the only phrase for it. They are adorable. Now, this was such an, a momentous mission, so I thought that I would scatter some of these little clips from these animations throughout the show until we get to the Rosetta mission finale, which took place a few days ago. In that clip, there were a couple of firsts that were mentioned with a couple of flybys, though both two asteroids. Asteroid 2867 Steins and 21 Lutetia. Are you familiar with those, John? No, I'm not, actually. On the September the 5th, 2008, Rosetta flew by asteroid 2867 Steins at a distance of 800 kilometers and a relatively slow speed of 8.6 kilometers per second. Despite the short duration of this encounter, which was approximately seven minutes in total, a great amount of data was obtained by the 15 scientific instruments operating on board the spacecraft. The timing of the flyby meant that the asteroid was illuminated by the sun from the perspective of the spacecraft, making the transmitted images really clear and concise. Asteroid Steins is a, a small E-type asteroid that was discovered in 1969 by Nikolai Chernik, and it is named after Carlis Steins, who is a Latvian and Soviet astronomer. After the flyby, Issa describes Steins as a diamond in the sky, as it has a wide body that tapers off to a point. Images of Steins taken by Rosetta allowed scientists to determine that the asteroid has dimensions of 6.67 by 5.81 by 4.47 kilometers, which gives it a diameter of 5.3 kilometers. The wide section is dominated by a large crater of about 2.1 kilometers in diameter, which surprised scientists because they were really amazed that the, the asteroid had survived such an impact. <laughs> a 
And then, as we mentioned there, that Rosetta flew past asteroid 21 Letitia at a distance of 3,162 kilometers at a relative speed of 15 kilometers per second on the 10th of July 2010. The flyby provided images of up to 60 meters per pixel resolution and covered about 50% of the surface, mostly in the northern hemisphere, and 462 images were obtained. Lutetia was also observed by the visible near infrared imaging spectrometer, or Virtus. <laughs> <laughs> and the measurements of the magnetic field and the plasma environment were also taken as well. Letitia was discovered on November the 15th, 1852 by Hermann Goldschmidt from the balcony of his apartment in Paris. In fact, Letitia is named after the Latin name for Paris. Letitia is situated in the main asteroid belt with an estimated dimensions of 132 by 101 by 76 kilometers. That is huge and has an orbit period of 3.8 years. There is still an ongoing debate into Letitia's true composition, in particular to figure out whether it is a C-type or an M-type asteroid. Now, I was looking up the, the differences between the different types of asteroid, and I didn't realise how many of them there are, which made it more complicated to try and explain what it was. So I've really simplified it right down. An M-type asteroid are metallic in composition, whereas C-type asteroids have more of an organic compound. E-type asteroids, uh, like Steins, are classed by their size and are tiny in comparison to the other types. I think they pretty much go from A to Z. <laughs> Probably. In, in the types. That was um, a bit of information about Rosetta's first part of her mission. We'll go into a few more news stories and uh, we'll play a few more of those little clips later on. Rosetta's obviously probably the, the biggest one. Well, you know, I don't know about the biggest one when you consider some of the other things that have happened, like, um, oh. you know, rockets exploding on the launch pad. Oh, yeah. That's that's gotta hurt uh pretty much although they, they found out pretty quickly what they think was the cause of it though didn't they well they think and it's not without precedent because they seem to be having problems with those helium systems one way or another now granted the first explosion was not due to the helium system itself but rather a support strut that seemed to have given way but this time it looks like it might have been some kind of a breach in their helium system, which, you know, could have been related. You never know. Although, have you heard, uh, what, what's the phrase that Sherlock Holmes used to say? Uh, we must fall back upon the idiom that where all other contingencies fail, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And uh, supposedly, according to the Washington Post, SpaceX is actually trying to... Uh, investigate the possibility of a sabotage a spacex employee requested a rooftop access to a building owned by competitor united launch alliance because one of the big mysteries about this is if you listen to it very closely there, there's a very distinct explosion sound right before the main explosion as improbable as it might be they're trying to completely rule out that there was a sniper shot from the ULA building. I appreciate the fact that they're trying to, you know, leave no stone unturned, but I think the firing of a high-capacity sniper rifle <laughs> could really... I, that's a little bit out there. Just, just a tad. <laughs> you know, and, and it didn't help that ULA said, no, we're not going to give you any access to the building. So, you know, there's all... Oh, well, now there's a cover-up. But apparently Air Force officials were allowed up there 
and they found no evidence of a connection to the explosion. And really, when you think about it, what kind of evidence would there be except a shell, which if it really was a sniper attack, I would hope that the person was smart enough to pick up the shell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, I applaud them for trying to make sure that they've ruled out every alternative. But still, I mean, it's it's that, that was just an amazing explosion to watch, though. That was weird, and it was just during a routine, you know, test firing, which that's that that's what they do. Yeah, unfortunately, it's one of these things that can happen. I, I mean, I know it's a loss of money. I would assume that there was some kind of insurance on that. I would hope, but apparently that satellite that was lost was part of Facebook's Getting Internet to Africa initiative. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a big question of, well, who's going to pay for the loss of that satellite? Yeah, and it's going to take a while to get it back in, you know, get another one back in operation again. It's, it, you know, pu pushed them back quite a, a way with it. The part that really felt just gut-wrenching was you saw the explosion... The sound came a little bit later, but then you saw the satellite then suddenly topple over. It so it's like, out. Yeah. oh, it was intact. And then that fell and exploded. Something could have been salvaged and then, ouch. Yeah. But that was just, but you know, to their credit, they said, you know what? We're not going to give up. They're still expecting to get another launch out in November. Mm -hmm. You know, it's space is hard. Yeah. Space is hard. You know, you can't. Anybody who's looking at this like, ha, huh, yeah, well, they're, I guess they're done for now. No, they're not. They're going to learn from this. They're gonna, it's a setback for sure. Look how quickly it took SpaceX to come back from the, the, the explosion they had before. Yeah. It was really quick. And the same with um, Orbital. ATK, they had a similar situation and right. uh, they came back from that really quickly. When you're dealing with the corporate side of things, you have to turn around quickly. It's a bit different sure. when, you, when you're dealing with um, government funded uh, <laughs> scenarios. Right. You haven't got um, shareholders and, and that to con contend with. <laughs> this is what happens. You know, it, it's sad that they lost that satellite. The satellite can be rebuilt. Mm hmm. You know, the rocket pad can be rebuilt. And it's just, chances are what they're going to do now is they're just going to have a whole ton more sensors on board to keep track of every little thing that goes on. You know, when it happens again, there will be another rocket explosion somewhere. It's going to happen. But now they'll be able to have even more data to find out what went wrong. I mean, you look at the change around when we unfortunately lost Columbia. You look at the changes that was made very quickly, like the maneuver to put it upside down, uh, right. shuttle upside down so you can check the tiles and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. i mean that hadn't been done before an amazing thing to watch as well um, yeah, well it, yeah that was cool to see one of those things flip um you know having the extra cameras on the fuel tank and things like that that's all stuff that hadn't happened before and now everybody does it yeah I mean, there's only good that can come from this and even i'm sure all the other places you know isa and, and all the others they're probably going to be saying, hmm, maybe we should put more sensors on our rockets too, mm. just to be safe. Oh, yeah, for sure. It happens that way. I mean, unfortunately, you have to have things go wrong before you uh -huh. can actually work out what things need to be changed. Yeah. Everything is trial and error. There's no such thing as a standard procedure when it comes to rocketry. Every time you fly, it's like doing it for the first time. Uh, there's no way that you could have every possible contingency. It's like a, a friend of mine who's a programmer says that when it comes to, to testing code, there are certain conditions where you just can't test because you can't test a negative as he would say mm -hmm. 
you just don't know that every possible thing can go wrong. This is just one of those things that happens. Now, fortunately, there was no loss of life. That's that's good. That's always a, yeah. a big positive. Yeah, everything that was lost can be rebuilt, and they're just going to make it better, stronger, faster. So it's all good. SpaceX will be back. Definitely. Russian media has announced that Roscosmos will be downsizing the space station crew of cosmonauts from three to two. The TAS press agency revealed that the crew reduction will start with the March 2017 launch of the Soyuz MS-04 mission and will last until the launch of the Nuka Multipurpose um, Laboratory Module, or MLM, which is scheduled for the end of 2017. According to the source, this decision is dictated by the reduction of the Progress Cargo spaceship launched to the ISS from four of them a year to three of them a year. So NASA will rely on the two commercially resupplied services from the Dragon and Cygnus uh, to send US cargo to the space station. The three Progress spacecrafts a year is not enough to support a trio of cosmonauts working permanently on board the ISS. So it sounds to me like the Russians are cutting costs. Yeah. But notice it didn't include if there's the third seat, then they will use it for other countries. Because mm-hmm. what is it? I can't remember how much it is per person. It's like some $70 million or something like that per person, isn't it? Something like that. I'm sure Richard Gary would love to go back up again. Oh, yeah, he'd love it. Absolutely. <laughs> it just seems a bit strange, again, that the Russians are cutting costs. Uh, are they putting the money towards something else? The big speculation is that, seeing as how things between us and the Russians is not very cozy at the moment, that they're probably going to be partnering up with their new buddy. Well, well, they're actually they're not their new buddies, but their traditional buddies, China. China are sending people back up to their um, space station in October, apparently at the end of the month. I think. Are they? Because I thought I I read an article that their space station is actually losing altitude or something of that effect. Mm, I think they're sending people up there to... um, To fix it. Yeah. Uh, Okay. But it's not exactly um, what we would class as a space station these days because the the plans are like one of the early Soviet ones, uh, very similar to the Skylab, actually. Because there was talk of the Chinese working in conjunction with ESA and letting some uh, European astronauts onto their space station (laughs) European not American imagine that the Mm. Cold War's back (laughs) did it ever go away (laughs) you know there was a period there where it seemed like it finally had gone away and thank you 9-11 and the things that happened after that it just ended up coming all right back they were trying to make it so that it wouldn't affect anything in space. Up in space, everything is different. But when they had the, the troubles in, in Ukraine, yeah, Russia yeah, wasn't too. talking to America. I was a bit worried for the people that were up on the space station at the time. You know, they've got to work together up there, you know. Mm-hmm. No, but I mean, they, they came out afterward and said, politics have nothing to do with anything up here. And, and I, I trust them on that one. You will probably take pride in this as as a man of uh, British heritage. (laughs) Of course, I love this just because I'm, you know, 70s and 80 rock. That's my thing. Freddie Mercury has had an asteroid named after him. 
Let's see, the announcement was made. It, it's a, it's called a dark object, so you really can't see it. Apparently, it's more than 10,000 times fainter than what you could otherwise see by the eye, so you need a really decent-sized telescope to see it. But the announcement was made by his fellow bandmate, Brian May. He's a doctor now. He's a doctor. Yeah, yeah he's got a doctor. Yeah, he's yeah. a doctor in astrophysics. So, yeah, Dr. Brian May fittingly made the announcement for this one. So the asteroid was previously named Asteroid 17473. There's, I'd much rather, you know, Asteroid Mercury or something. Actually, ooh, you can't say Asteroid Mercury. Uh, asteroid Freddy doesn't count. Asteroid Oh, no, it's called Freddy Mercury. It's all together as oh, one word. one word. And, you know, it works. Mm-hmm. That's now, fl- as uh, he might say, Floating around in ecstasy. <laughs> Queen fans will understand the reference. I thought that was really cool. And of course, for, for Brian May to be involved, that, that also makes it really cool. And I love following him because I am a huge 3D buff. Mm-hmm. I love 3D. So does he. He's constantly posting photos and videos, you know, in, in stereoscopic 3D. And he was one of the first to actually com- actually make a stereoscopic 3D image of Pluto shortly after the the New Horizon data got sent back. Mm-hmm. Following him is a hoot. He's he loves space and it makes no bones about that. If you if you know the story of Brian May, because he started studying his um, degree in what 1970 something or about mm-hmm. 71, 72, something like that, jacked it all in so that he could start a band. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> and then like forty years later, went back and finished his degree. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely kudos for, for him to him on that one. And it was also neat watching all of the uh, the New Horizon press conferences, and there he was sitting in, in the audience hmm. asking questions too. That's probably one of those things where he was just thrilled to be there with New Horizons, and the New Horizons guys were probably like, "Oh my God, the guy from Queen is here." <laughs> <laughs> They're all like that, though. I mean, it's, it's uh, the guys that when they were at university, it was like, the, you know, rock was the thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to, to have someone like that turn up is just an amazing thing to, to have. <laughs> but for him, he's looking at all these scientists and going, oh, my God, look at these guys. Yep. <laughs> and they're going, oh, my God, Brian May. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective, I guess. Um, we have a, a, a TV show here called The Sky at Night, which is an astronomy show, obviously. And it used to be hosted by a guy called Sir Patrick Moore, who was an absolute legend in astronomy. And he died a few years ago. And it was all talk about who was going to take over as the host of the show. And there was all these rumours that Brian May was going to be the new host. <laughs> Never happened. If anyone, it would have been Brian Cox. But that uh, didn't happen either. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, it's really good now that uh, on, on British TV, we, we've got a lot of scientists who are now becoming household names. That's good to see. I love that. And there's, a, there's quite a few female scientists that are being, you know, household names now as well. Yeah. Uh, That's even better to see. Yeah. Nothing against the guys, but there's been a lot recently about, you know, women in science and trying to bring that to the forefront. And then you you read these articles that basically have never been taught and you find out that women scientists have made some really important discoveries. Everyone knows, you know, Marie Curie and and so forth, Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of others like the Apollo missions. Yeah, yeah. Was primarily done by a woman. Yeah. All the coding. 
Yeah. In fact, the code printed off was almost as tall as her. Mm. Yeah, I've seen the photos of, uh, of her sat, you know. near enough sat on one. They sat on these pile of punch cards. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's just amazing. So it's good to see that that women scientists are finally starting to get the recognition they deserve. Actually, I was listening to a podcast recently about women in the early days of astronautics and stuff and and it was called women who had the right stuff and yes i remember hearing about that too and it's really good and and the, the lady that uh, it was it focuses around and i love her name she was training to be an astronaut back in the days of the right stuff and her name's wally funk hello my name is wally funk and i thought what a name <laughs> this woman has got so much i can't think of the word i i need but she, she's just full of energy Mm-hmm. Really full of energy, and and, and um, it shows in what she she wants to put across to people, and it's it's amazing to hear her speak. It's really really entertaining to listen to. I'll tell you what, if you find it, put it in the show notes so that anybody can hear it. That'd be good. After three months investigating the comet from orbit, it was time to send Philae to its surface. A long night of final preparations lay ahead of them. Finally, the moment everyone had been waiting for arrived. As the world held its breath, Rosetta moved into the exact position needed to make sure Philae would reach the landing site that scientists on Earth had picked earlier in the mission. Philae and Rosetta were sad to be going their separate ways, but excited at the same time, because this is what they had been waiting to do. Philae was away. It would take seven hours to reach the surface, but Philae wanted to get started on his measurements right away. He could soon see the surface in incredible detail, and the moment he had been dreaming of had finally arrived. He had reached the surface of the comet. But all was not right. His harpoons did not fire. Philae realized he couldn't relax yet. He was rising from the surface again. Philae was scared he might drift off the comet completely. This was not in the plan. But eventually, he came back down again. However, as he looked around, he realized he had landed in a completely unexpected location. Philae immediately set to work on studying his new home. It took him just over two days to conduct all the experiments he had brought with him. After all his hard work, Philae began to feel tired, so he made sure to send all the data he had collected back to Rosetta. As the sun set over Philae's new home, he fell into a deep sleep, safe in the knowledge that he did his main job well and that his family of comet-chasing heroes would be proud of his achievement. Who knows, perhaps one day enough sunlight would fall on his new landing site and wake him up so that he could carry on investigating this incredible world. And so, as the comet moved over closer to the sun, Rosetta prepared for the next part of her exciting adventure. Rosetta continued studying the comet, learning new and wonderful things as she followed it on its journey through the solar system. 
It measured four kilometers across, and from the gravitational pull that Rosetta felt, she could calculate the mass of the comet, 10 billion tons. Although the comet looked like a giant rock, it was made of something much lighter, so much so that it would float on water. As the comet got closer to the hot sun, Rosetta saw its activity increase. She collected samples of the gas and dust that streamed into space in order to learn more about what the comet was made of and where in the solar system it was born. One of the most important questions scientists back home wanted to answer was where Earth's water came from. Could it have come from comets and asteroids billions of years ago? Rosetta was surprised to discover that the water vapor flowing away from her comet had a different flavor to Earth's oceans. The scientists wondered what it would mean for their theories of how the solar system evolved. There were many other types of gases too, and it smelt like a weird mixture of rotten eggs, horse tables, and marzipan. Rosetta also collected thousands and thousands of dust grains, small and large. Some of them seemed very fluffy, like the head of a dandelion. As the days and weeks passed, the comet looked more and more spectacular. Rosetta flew close by to get a better look, but there she found herself surrounded by a lot of dust. Although it wasn't as dangerous as when Grandfather Giotto flew past Comet Halley at high speed many years ago, Rosetta still became disoriented and almost lost her way, so decided to continue her work from a safer distance. Rosetta began to see the surface of the comet changing as they got nearer to the sun. She saw jets of dust coming out of pits and patches of ice being revealed. Even though the comet was becoming more active, it was still quite cold on the surface. Rosetta measured temperatures around minus 100 degrees Celsius, and it was even colder underneath. Thinking about the cold, she worried about Philae, who had been asleep for several months. She didn't even know exactly where he had finally landed and wondered whether there was enough sunlight there to recharge his batteries. Then, one Saturday in June, she received a phone call. It was Philae. He was awake. She quickly told everyone on Earth. Rosetta wanted to tell Philae all that had happened while he had been asleep and the many exciting things she had learned about the comet, but the connection wasn't very good. It was very frustrating, and Rosetta had to move to different locations to try to find the best spot for a better connection. Philae hoped he would soon be able to do more experiments on the comet's surface, while Rosetta studied it from afar. As the comet reached its closest point to the sun, Rosetta and Philae were very excited to witness this once-in-a-lifetime event. And they looked forward to seeing what would happen to the comet over the next year as they headed back towards the outer solar system. There's some really 
weird things that they were mentioning there. One about the the composition of the actual comet that was um, quite light in respect to the fact it could float. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it's shaped like a duck and can float <laughs> <laughs> but if it weighs the same as a duck it's made of wood oh, I know Therefore, where this is going <laughs> a witch! A witch! <laughs> yeah <laughs> someone had to <laughs> it's a witch <laughs> I mean, I've got this big Monty Python and the Holy Grail poster right next to my microphone. You know, it's just got to do it. <laughs> they also mentioned on there about the, the different smells that it uh, that you get from the, the dust <laughs> and that, you know, it was a combination of rotten bad. eggs, horse stables and marzipan. I mean, there's a combination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had to laugh at that one. And the other part was when Philae came back to life and um, started sending signals back to Rosetta. When this actually happened, it was on the 14th of June, 2015, and it was around about 10.45 p.m. Now, you're in the European Space Operations Centre, or ESOC, <laughs> at Darmstadt in Germany. You're on your own. You're the... the uh, on-duty space controller and all of a sudden you hear a rather loud noise now you might want to pull your headphones away for this but um this is what the sound that you would have heard at that time now imagine that you've been probably had a coffee or something like that and that sound is coming through the system you think oh my god something's gone wrong what's going on and that is exactly what the alarm sounds like uh, which had been set up to ensure that any lander contact would not have been missed now i can guarantee you if you're hearing that <laughs> you're not gonna ignore it yeah. and your coffee is now on your shirt <laughs> So you got the guy there, the, the on-duty spacecraft controller. He consults an action sheet that's been kept on hand since 15th of November 2014 when Philae entered into hibernation on the comet. He just had to look at the sheet just to determine what he should do next. Okay. <laughs> so, as defined on the action sheet, the controller telephones the Rosetta on-call spacecraft operations engineer, a guy called Jake Urbanek, at home to report the news. Then this engineer phones another engineer called Armel Huber at her home to confirm that the lander had switched on and was transmitting telemetry. She then confirms the news by calling the lander team <laughs> on a pre-agreed telephone number and they confirm the lander is back. So she also rings the Rosetta Spacecraft Operations Manager, who then rings Paolo Fer Ferry, who's ESA's Head of Mission Operations, who subsequently relays the information to the rest of the Rosetta Science and Operation Managers. You'd have thought there would be a, a quicker way of dealing with that. This has the makings of a slapstick comedy movie. <laughs> Everybody falling out of bed, tripping over themselves, you know, goofy music and sound effects in the background. Yeah, sort of Benny Hill's kind of thing going on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Armel uh, uh, remembers, I just brushed my teeth and I was heading to bed when the phone rang. Seeing that it was Jake was calling, I picked up the phone and said, this has got to be bad news. <laughs> 
No. He replied, well, maybe not. Maybe it's good news. And sure enough, <laughs> it was. Uh, I saw this article and I thought, yeah, I've got to include this in there because it was just, you know, a case of events just one after the other, like a domino rally as they <laughs> one phone call after another. <laughs> In a similar vein to suddenly getting contact back with Philae, NASA has actually been able to reestablish contact with one of their satellites that they lost contact with about two years ago. Oh, wow. So I'm sure you've heard of the Stereo A and Stereo B. Yep. That yep. went up then, and they're, they're studying the sun. Uh, so, of course, because, you know, Stereo, of course, means the Solar Terrestrial Relations Observatory. So they launched two of them and sent them off to different places to study the sun. Well, because of where the Earth's position was relative to theirs, they actually had them shut down for about two years so that the antenna dish didn't have to face the sun and possibly incur heat damage from that. Mm -hmm. So they put them into sleep mode and said, wake up in two years or, or you know, whenever it becomes safer to communicate back with Earth. And Stereo A did, Stereo B never did. Ouch. So needless to say, that was just sent them into panic mode. Uh, they tried reestablishing communication multiple times, and then eventually they managed to finally start communicating with it again for the first time uh, since they told it to go into reset back in 2014. It's pretty amazing when they can do that kind of thing, because, I mean, we've heard so many stories recently of losing contact with stuff and... and getting communication back with them again mm -hmm. considering it's not a case of oh, i'll just um go over there and tweak it a little bit or whatever i mean it's you know thousands and thousands of miles away yeah. um you're basically just trying to send signals and jump start things by remote it doesn't seem possible no it doesn't especially when they're on the opposite side of the sun yeah and yeah, you're right, because it's just, well, we haven't heard from it in 2014. Let's try again. You know, here we are two years later, and let's try it again. Nope, nothing. Let's try it again. Nope, nothing. Uh, but eventually, they finally got communication with it again, and you know, they're going to be running diagnostics and so forth to find out what happened, you know, make sure that it's where it should be and, and that everything is working as it should be. So, uh, yeah, so there we have another instance of, uh, I don't want to say the satellite's coming back to life, because it might have been alive, just lost communication. Mm -hmm. But uh, so there you go, stereo A and B are back up and running. See, that's the problem with dealing with the sun is because it affects everything. So, I mean, when you're trying to send signals across, I mean, it gets deflected, it gets all kinds of different things, mm -hmm. and it's so unpredictable. And there's a little bit of irony there because their purpose for going up was to study uh, coronal mass injections and so forth. You know, the, the, the charged particles that can affect our communications here, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but also, of course, produce those stunning aurora. But I, it's just kind of funny that, oh, yeah, they're, they're sent up there to study what causes communication problems here on Earth. And we've got a communication problem with one of them. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> but it's been resolved, so they're they're doing what they should be doing. Well, Stereo A has been doing its work, so it's, you know it's just a matter of trying to figure out what happened with Stereo B. In a presentation recently, almost like something out of science fiction, Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX, revealed the Interplanetary Transport System, or the ITS. <laughs> 
the two-stage rocket will be bigger and send more payloads into orbit and beyond than anything in the history of spaceflight. Uh, at the 67th International Astronautical Congress held in uh, Guadalajara in Mexico, Musk detailed the components of ITS, a giant booster stage with a giant spaceship totaling 400 feet in length. The booster stage would be 250 feet tall and 39 feet wide. It would sport 42 Raptor engines at the bottom. Coincidentally, the same number as the answer to the ultimate question of life, <laughs> the universe, and everything. You know you're a geek when. <laughs> Which is also one of Elon Musk's favourite books. Um, these engines haven't been used before, because obviously they're using the um, the Merlin engines at the moment. Did you see the, the test firing of them? I the, did. Wow. That was neat. <laughs> They are amazing. The spaceship doubles as an upper stage, and that will be 162 feet long and 56 feet wide, and would have a total of nine engines, three at sea level and six in vacuum versions. The expendable version of a rocket will be able to take 550 metric tons into low Earth orbit while the fully reusable version would be able to take 300 metric tons. After being refueled in orbit, it could take up to 450 metric tons up to a Martian surface. That's amazing. It's quite big, said Elon Musk, <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be about this size to, in order to fit about 100 people in the pressurised section, plus carry the luggage and all the unpressurized cargo to build propellant tanks and build everything from iron foundries to pizza joints <laughs> <laughs> musk said that he hopes to name it heart of gold after the ship with the infinite improbability drive from the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yep. oh, why not make it fun i like that it is driven by the infinite improbability drive because our ship is improbable. <laughs> <laughs> the whole system would launch from Kennedy Space Center's launch pad 39A, and the rocket's first stage will have a similar launch profile as the Falcon 9. According to Musk, depending on what planetary alignment you use, you could get to Mars in as little as 80 days with the ITS. That's ambitious. <laughs> That's really ambitious. After landing on the red planet, it would refuel using an in-situ propellant production to create liquid oxygen and methane fuel. It would then launch directly back to Earth and land. Both the rocket booster and the spaceship will be powered by these Raptor engines. SpaceX is targeting to reuse the booster up to a thousand times, the tanker a hundred times and the Mars spaceship 12 times. The engines will consume um, subcooled liquid oxygen and subcooled liquid methane, similar to what the company's current rocket, the Falcon 9, does with liquid oxygen and liquid grade kerosene. Using 42 of these engines, the boost stage, which does not yet have a name, will accelerate the whole stack, including the spaceship on top, to a velocity of 5,375 miles per hour at stage separation. <sighs> The booster then will return to the launch site using only 7% of the total booster propellant load. Grid fins will guide the giant rocket back for a precise landing 
on the launch mount. We're getting quite comfortable at the accuracy of our landings, Musk said. With the addition of some manoeuvring thrusters, we can actually put the booster right back on the launch stand. Those fins at the bottom of the base of the rocket are essentially centering features to take out any minor position mismatch at the launch site. SpaceX plans on sending a modified unpilot crew dragon called the Red Dragon to Mars in 2018. So that's our near they're going to be testing after that spacex plans to send at least one capsule to mars during every mars rendezvous opportunity to deliver up to three metric tons of usable cargo or science equipment to the surface it's pretty amazing i mean there's been a lot of naysayers out there saying you know it's all pie in the sky it's only cgi and kept mentioning about the explosion recently but a lot of it is technology that they've proven works okay it's a souped up version <laughs> of what they've been using very much so three times the amount of power but yeah the size of the rocket i mean 400 feet <laughs> that, that, is, that is a big rocket as much as i would love to see it and as much as i have no doubt that he is absolutely really confident that such a thing can be done that's really aggressive. That is a super aggressive timeline. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and well, even, I mean, this just came out like literally a, like a few hours before we started recording. Basically, Boeing's CEO has said, yeah, you're not going to be the first to Mars, guys. Sorry. Because it's, it's uh, I hope I'm getting his name right. It's Dennis Muhlenberg, or I'm assuming it's pronounced that way. But he was he was being asked questions about those sorts of things. And he said, I'm convinced that the first person to step foot on Mars will arrive there riding a Boeing rocket. And the thing is, that wasn't his way of saying that, well, we're going to get a rocket up there sooner than than 2024. That's his way of saying, yeah, there's no way SpaceX is going to do that because NASA and Boeing, they're targeting their human Mars mission for the mid 2030s. So basically what they're doing is just throwing the gauntlet down to SpaceX saying, you're not going to make that timeline. Yeah, well, good luck with SLS. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But uh, still, it's just one of those things where, I mean, who to believe on that one? That, that is such an aggressive timeline. And then there, are, there have been other things that people have asked me. It's like, okay, all this stuff about going to Mars is really cool. Meanwhile, we've got this little orbital body that we can see most nights of the year mm -hmm. that is significantly closer. Yep. Can be a perfect testing ground for all of these technologies. Yep. No one's touching it. And ideally, could be a great place to have a refueling post. Perfect spot for a refueling post. You know, it took what three days for Apollo Eleven to get there. Mm -hmm. Well, you can obviously now get there much faster with these with these new engines. Yeah. Why are we ignoring the moon? Is it just because Mars is a grander award to get? How about we just go for the practical and go for the moon right now? Or, or I mean, is there something in the Martian atmosphere and the Martian surface that they're hoping to utilize that the moon doesn't have? I just don't understand why they're completely skipping the moon and just keeping it out of the equation. And also so that Richard Garriott can get photographs of his property whilst it's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, that just... I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me that they're skipping that. I mean, no matter what, you go to Mars, you're going to have to be... You're going to have to be living in a biodome, no matter what. Yeah. 
there's really not much that you can take from the atmosphere that would be a benefit. Why not just do it on the moon? It's right there. If there's a problem, you can have another ship up there in a few days. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, that I just don't understand. I mean, you can try the different things out. If it works on the moon, chances are it's going to work when you go to Mars right. as well. I mean, yeah, okay, so you're doing things in deserts and stuff, but it's not quite the same, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> now when people can walk out of that, that atmosphere or whatever and say, ah, fresh earth air, <laughs> you know, doesn't quite have the same feeling. Do it on the moon. It's not like we don't know anything about the surface or what would be a good location or anything like that. I don't. That, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Go back to the moon. Test it all there first. There's nothing wrong with that. Mars isn't going anywhere. And do you know who's someone who's actually echoing what we're just saying here? Buzz Aldrin? Gene Cernan. Ooh, we're in good company. <laughs> Very much so. So the Voyager spacecraft. Not talking about the one that came back to almost destroy us. Oh, Vega. Yes. <laughs> Not talking about that one. But uh, the Voyager spacecraft all had this record attached to it. Mm-hmm. That if an alien species ever finds it and they just so happen to have a record player, they'll be able to hear various sounds from Earth and so on and so forth. Well, those records, or copies of those records anyway, are now being made available through a Kickstarter campaign. See, I was going to try to link this up with the previous one with Queen, but, you know, we started talking about other stuff. So this is a Kickstarter campaign, and it's going to make these golden records available to the public for the first time ever. Obviously, these the Voyager spacecraft were launched back in 1977, mm-hmm. uh, and Carl Sagan also tried to get a copy of one of these records and he couldn't do it. But now a group of space enthusiasts at the Institute for the Future are working with website Boing Boing. Wow, Boing Boing. Don't get me wrong, I've been there. I just would not have expected them to be getting involved in this sort of thing. Uh, They've come together to create near-exact replicas of those gold-plated records to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the Voyager launches. So it's going to come with three translucent gold records you know and it's going to have various designs and so forth that are related to voyager and so forth and it's i don't want to say only but this is really kind of cool and unique and so they only want 98 dollars for all three of them so it's going to include the three translucent gold discs uh, a hardbound book a digital download card for all of the audio so you can get you know, the MP3s for it as well, and a lithograph of the cover diagram that was used. Uh, yeah. So uh, they're accepting contributions up until October 20th. And so far, clearly people are interested in this because they've already made almost four times of their initial goal of $198,000. Wow. Well, these are something that you'd want to frame for sure. Mm-hmm. They're really cool looking. They're really cool looking. And for 98 bucks for something like this, mm, I might. I mean, the fact that you, you can download the MP3s as well, which means you don't have to play the vinyl. Right. Uh, which will keep it fresh. But have you actually heard any of the stuff off of it? I have not. You haven't? Wow. No. You, I feel rather ashamed to admit that. I mean, you've got things like messages from the Secretary General of the United mm-hmm. Nations on there. You've got... Uh, the only reference to popular music is Chuck Berry. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got whale sounds on there and different tribal chants and all that kind of stuff. It's really quite cool. Yeah, so, I I, yeah, the, let's see, 27 tracks of music from around the world with artists ranging from Beethoven to Chuck Berry. Greetings in 55 languages, natural sounds like thunderstorms, erupting volcanoes, crashing ocean waves, a crying baby, and several animal calls. Of course, any alien who listens to this is probably going to be like, what the hell is this noise? I'm just thinking, well, if that included something like Klingon on there, that would have been quite amusing. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's 1977, so they... Well, Klingon didn't... No, well, no, they couldn't have. Because Klingon didn't really come up as a language probably until closer to Star Trek, the motion picture. Right. So I don't think there was so actually a Klingon was, language was in the original 79, series. 79, was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I, yeah, I don't think there really was a Klingon language back then. If there was, it certainly wasn't anywhere near as formalized as it is now. The closest you're probably going to get to it is Welsh. Um, <laughs> having been there recently for the first time, um, I was confused. <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the dual signage everywhere and uh, any, any kind of uh, announcements at train stations is in Welsh first and then in English. It's a strange place, but a lovely place. <laughs> Isn't the longest town name in the world Welsh uh yeah the road signs for that town is like three times the size of a normal road sign it's it's huge it is a bizarre language because some of it is a made up language it, for example there is no word for microwave in Welsh so the word they use is actually like the sounds that you get from a microwave for example if you've got a ready ready meal and you've got the plastic film on the top so you have to put the fork through it mm -hmm. and then you've got the sound that it makes when it finishes cooking the actual word in Welsh for a microwave is poppity ping are you serious I am being serious no Poppity ping. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> a poppity ping. That's what you do. You pop the film, you ping in the microwave. It's a poppity ping. Oh uh, my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You learn something new every day. into the Pontosphere with TGP Nominal. This is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. Listen to it. Rosetta had been at Comet 67P Karyumov-Jarasimenko for over 650 days and had seen many incredible things. She had mapped the entire surface of the nucleus and spotted dramatic changes over time. Rosetta followed the comet as it got ever closer to the sun and saw more and more gas and dust streaming from its surface. At that time, Rosetta had to keep at a safe distance because the comet was so active and the environment was very dusty. 
Rosetta knew that astronomers back on Earth were also observing the comet, and she enjoyed seeing the images of how it looked from afar. It made her realize just how vast the comet's tail was, over 10 million kilometers. She explored some of the tail herself on excursions that took her over a thousand kilometers from the nucleus. There, she studied how the stream of charged particles flowing from the sun affects the comet. Even though Rosetta was far away, she often thought of Philae, who she had not heard from since before their closest approach to the sun. She hoped that he had also enjoyed the view on the comet when it was most active. Later, as they moved back towards the outer solar system, the comet became less active and it was finally safe for Rosetta to get closer again. Whenever she flew over Philae's home, she listened out for any signals from him. She wanted to tell him about the amazing discoveries that the scientists back home had made using the data he had collected down on the comet. They had found the surface to be much harder than expected and that the comet contained many ingredients, including some complex molecules that could be the building blocks of life as we know it on Earth. Even though Rosetta could not see or hear Philae, she tried to make contact with him just in case he was listening. But unfortunately, they could not seem to get connected. Perhaps Philae had fallen back into a deep sleep, or maybe his radio was broken, but she was still very proud of him. After all, he had accomplished so many of his important tasks on the comet, and he was understandably tired. Rosetta, too, had made many exciting discoveries in the last year. She found patches of water ice on the surface of the comet and witnessed how the ice, heated by sunlight during the day, turned into gas and escaped into space, while new ice formed again every night. Besides water, Rosetta found many other molecules as she studied the atmosphere of the comet, including lots of oxygen. Scientists were very surprised to find so much. They thought that most of the oxygen would have reacted with other atoms. But perhaps it had been locked into the ice when the comet formed 4.6 billion years ago. The scientists were excited by what this discovery could tell them about the history of the solar system. By looking carefully at pictures taken by Rosetta, they also figured out how the comet got its curious shape. It likely happened when two smaller comets slowly crashed into each other billions of years ago. The scientists had also long wondered how the comet looks like from the inside. To find out, they studied the radio beams that Rosetta and Philae had sent to one another through the comet. They also measured how the signals that Rosetta sent back to Earth changed as the comet's gravity gently tugged on her while she flew around it. These experiments showed that the comet had no caverns under the surface larger than 100 meters. In fact, it was made up of a mix of loosely packed dust and ice grains on the inside. The comet was fluffy under its hard crust. Rosetta was thrilled of having made such great discoveries. But there was still a lot of work to be done. Rosetta only had a few more months left to make the most of her extraordinary mission before the grand finale.
far from the energy of the sun, Rosetta too would come to rest on the surface of the comet. But that's another story. So yeah, that was quite interesting, talking about how the, the comet came to be. I mean, you know, with two comets actually crashing into each other to create that shape. It's quite remarkable how these things work, where, as it was saying, through the radio waves that, that was actually going through the comet, they could work out the density of it and what it was made from and uh, and that kind of thing. It was, considering how much time they had to work with each other, uh, how much information, uh, all the data that was actually passed through. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Have you heard of a company called Rocket Lab? Not offhand. Now, Rocket Lab is a US-based company with a New Zealand subsidiary aiming to provide commercial rocket launch services. They announced on the 26th of September the completion of the world's first private space launch site in New Zealand. It's on the Mahia Peninsula, the facility named Launch Complex 1. Descriptive. <laughs> it's typical of the Southern Hemisphere, to be honest with you. If you look at anything in Australia, um, they've got like the Great Sandy Desert and the Great <laughs> Barrier Reef. Very descriptive. <laughs> Unlike like, like the Kalahari or something like that. No. Oh, come on. We, we go for the pure stuff here in America. Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this, this site will launch as a primary site for launches of the company's Electron rocket. Completing the launch complex one is a significant milestone for the build-up to our first electron flight test, said Rocket Lab CEO Peter Beck. Launch complex one presents a considerable opportunity to change how we access space. The location of the site enables the company to offer customers a, v a variety of orbital uh, inclinations. The site received a 30-year license to launch rockets every 72 hours. The wow. The highest frequency of space launches in history. In order to get the most out of this opportunity, the company is hoping to launch a maximum of 120 times a year. Okay. These are big goals, and I am... Very excited for Mahia and New Zealand to be launching more rockets into space than any other country in the world, Beck said. The newly completed complex includes a vehicle processing hangar where the Electron rockets will be prepared prior to flight, as well as a 45 metric ton launch platform and tower. The platform will be used to erect the rocket from a horizontal to a vertical position and will provide fuel and launch services. The site also features storage tanks for liquid oxygen and kerosene. The construction of the complex started in December 2015 and included upgrading the local infrastructure. By June 2016, most of the work was completed and in August 2016, the launch platform was installed, marking the final major step towards the site's opening. The opening ceremony of the new complex was attended by about 200 people, including New Zealand's Economic Development Minister, Stephen Joyce. With a mass of about 10.5 metric tonnes, the two-stage Electron rocket is 52 feet, feet tall, uh, well, these are small rockets by comparison. Yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, 3.94 feet in diameter and is capable of launching up to 330 pounds or 150 kilos of payloads 
into sun-synchronous orbit with an altitude of 310 miles. Each of the launcher's two stages uses one of Rocket Lab's electric pump-fed Rutherford engines. The company is currently working on the qualification of Electron's first stage, the second stage and the 3D printed Rutherford engine have already passed the qualification. The Electron rocket will be employed for launching CubeSats and NanoSats into space. Rocket Lab revealed that these tiny spacecraft will provide optimised crop monitoring, improved weather reporting, the internet from space, natural disaster prediction and up-to-date uh, marine time data for the search and rescue services. The company aims to offer the most affordable small satellite launch services starting at $4.9 million. The list of future customers include NASA, Planet, Spire and Moon Express. The first test launch of the Electron is currently planned to take place before the end of the year sometime next year the rocket will loft moon express lunar lander mx1 towards the moon that flight is currently targeted for late 2017 successful launches from launch complex one will make new zealand 11th country to put a satellite into orbit well, you know with all these other companies focusing on bigger badder massive rockets i can see where there's actually a market for these smaller rockets yeah i mean the uk used to test their rockets in the southern hemisphere in the 1950s and 60s there's no reason why small companies in those areas shouldn't prosper no I'm going to have to look into them a little bit more because until yesterday, I didn't even know they existed. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of them either. But uh, yeah, they sound quite a promising little company. I mean, it's exactly how um, companies like SpaceX started up. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason why in a few years they can't be producing, you know, much bigger rockets. No, but I mean, if they can perfect this, that's probably going to be all they need. It will certainly make them money. Yeah, because I mean, it, it's pretty clear that SpaceX is trying to get bigger and better because they want to go to Mars. Boeing is trying to do bigger and better because they want to go to Mars. And somebody who wants to do the smaller stuff, well, now these guys can handle it. Yeah. In fact, I, I, when, you, when you started talking about this, I went to their website and they're saying that if you want to launch a CubeSat... They're good at, they, they can do launching CubeSats. You know, um, one, a single CubeSat can go up for $50,000. That's pretty cheap. But that, on the... that is cheap for sending anything to space. Mm. Huh, that, that's actually pretty darn cool. I did find an irony on their website, though, because everything is in metric. So, I mean, you're talking imperial, but yet you guys have switched to metric. <laughs> Here I am in the, the only country left that does imperial, and I'm looking at metric, but yet... Their dollar figure is in U.S. dollars. So oh, what? Right. <laughs> so the U.K. is very strange when it comes to measurements and things because... Um, you still a hybrid? Yeah. I'll tell you how it works. If you look at temperatures, if you're talking about cold temperatures, we always do it in Celsius because minus whatever sounds colder. Whereas if you're dealing with heat, oh, it's 100 degrees today. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> Because it sounds hotter. <laughs> okay. Where, um, where's the middle ground? <laughs> we deal in miles per hour on our road systems. People over a certain age still use feet and inches for measuring height of 
people in particular. We still use Imperial for measuring weight, although it's different to the American Imperial measurement of weight because you just go, oh, he weighs so many pounds. Mm -hmm. We'll say he weighs so many stone and yeah, so many pounds. Yeah, still use stone. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so it's kind of weird. But if you're measuring up... Um, uh, countertops and things like that for kitchens it's all in millimeters <laughs> so it's, it's all a bit of a mismatch of um, things here hey at least you guys still aren't us using shillings half pennies and farthings you know oh I could never work that out <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think some of the old phrases like mind your p's and q's mm -hmm. mind your pints and quarts that's what that means ah well, I mean, let's face it. You guys will never, ever, ever get rid of the British pint. Oh, let's, let's just face no. that. That's just never going to happen, no matter happen. what. It's, I, I can't get, you know, these fluid ounces and, and, and stuff. No, pints, please. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, they did try and um, change all that with, uh, you know, the European directives, but uh, we weren't having any of it. That's one thing we stuck by. You, you, you might take away our gallons when it comes to, to petrol, but you're not taking away our pints when it comes to beer. So, <laughs> oh God, Braveheart is coming into mind. <laughs> but you will not take away our pints. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, see, that's where we came and stuck with the, with the uh, with the petrol because. We used to sell it by the gallon, and now you sell it by the litre, but you're still charging the same amount per litre. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Ooh, that's 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 a really jerk move. So we, it's about, you know, one pound something a litre, but cars fill up by the gallon. Okay, so I don't know how many litres there are to a gallon. It's 3.3, I believe, or somewhere around that range. So it's like three times the amount, so we're getting fleeced pretty much yeah uh, on that I mean, it used to be great when it used to be in gallons you could fill up your car and it cost you next to nothing you know uh, we noticed that the first time we, we went to the, the the states when we were getting like two dollars to the pound oh I bet you guys enjoyed that oh yeah we had a great vacation I can tell you <laughs> um, <laughs> I can live like a king while I'm over here for two weeks yes so like, yes you could <laughs> Not so much now, though. No. <laughs> hey, when we see the images and so forth from Hubble, and we're seeing these wonderful colors and sharp details, we're not really seeing what's there. And apparently, some people just love to announce that. Just, you know, just like the, the joke how you always know when there's a vegan or an atheist in the room because they'll be the first to tell you. <laughs> or, or those people it's like, oh, you know, when you talk about vegetables and you don't, well, no, technically a tomato is not a vegetable. You know, those kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Apparently, uh, an astrophysicist at the Ohio State University named Paul Sutter has kind of had enough of people saying, why is NASA giving us these false color images. You're not really seeing purples like that in space. And basically what the guy is saying, will you just shut up about the false color images? Because there's a very good reason for it. It's true that if you looked at any of those, those nebulae formations and so forth with the naked eye or with a really good telescope, you won't see a bunch of colors. 
They don't look anywhere near as clean and detailed as the Hubble and, and bright and colorful. No, they don't. But there's a very good reason why they do this, because unlike our eyes, which only see a very limited spectrum of light, the Hubble sensors pretty much take in everything. And you can't take x-rays that Hubble sees and convert it to the kinds of waves it would be, because then we still wouldn't see it. Mm -hmm. So the whole purpose for false color is to be able to see the other types of radiation that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see. So things like x-rays and so forth, uh, you know, they're, they're up toward the blue. Mm -hmm. Infrared, those are down toward the red. So in order to be able to see the infrared energy and to see gamma rays and x-rays, they assign it a color or, or a, you know, a set of colors mm -hmm. that, that is then brought together with all of the images that, that the Hubble takes. And that's where false color comes in. And that's why they do that. They do that for the science of it. They don't do it just to make it look pretty. You know, there, there are reasons for that. And it's actually funny because the whole thing, he's going through, you know, what people would say to him. But it all comes down to the reason why researchers add the artificial colors is to pick out the features that we can't see with the naked eye. But they're out there. And it's the same with things that are in the distance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, we're talking light years away where you can see disturbances and ripples. Right. So that you can tell there's something else there. But you wouldn't be able to naturally see that with the human eye. You need to have something to aid you. And it's the same with this. It's the colors that aid you to see other things that you wouldn't normally see. Mm-hmm. Well, and things like there are obviously various elements that are within those nebulae and so they use very let's really, well you know the the infrared spectrum is here but it's actually shifted what would shift it oh well oxygen would make it shift that way mm -hmm. so that must mean that there's a bunch of oxygen inside that nebula you know that there are scientific reasons why they do that and it's it's actually fascinating to read what he says regarding how they take that information and why they assign it the colors that they do. So, folks, don't be one of those people. Just look at the image, enjoy the color that's there, and marvel at the fact that we've got a big honking telescope up there that can provide us with these gorgeous images. It's not there to make things look pretty, although they do. They do, oh yeah. The science is not there to be pretty. <laughs> Science rarely is pretty. People thinking about, you know, like Stephanie Evans, you know, talking to her and, you know, she's in bunny, those bunny suits where she's completely covered mm -hmm. and she's got a, an almost complete face mask on just to work on these satellites. And it's just science generally is not pretty. And then chemistry, you've got all those chemicals that they've got to work with and you know probably is not a very wonderful environment in some cases no i mean these these has chem areas are uh, not the nicest of places to be <laughs> nasa has made all of its research available online for free it, that that's a lot of data whereas before it was hidden behind a paywall which as a u.s taxpayer i find really insulting 
you know, my tax dollars went to fund you, but yet you still want people to pay to get access to the data that my taxpayer funds went to pay you to do. There's a problem here. Well, not everything. There are some things for national security, uh, whatever that means. That Na- Well, I guess NASA has done some top secret things. That Air Force plane that's still up there and going to be up there for a year. But in 2013, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy directed NASA and other agencies to increase access to their research, which in the past, as I said, was often behind a paywall. So now the policy is that any research articles funded by the agency, therefore tax dollars, have to be posted on PubSpace, which is the name of the website, within a year after publication. And the EU is also doing this sort of thing. In May, EU member states agreed to do basically the same kind of thing by making all of their scientific papers available by 2020. Wow. So, information. It is a good thing. And it looks like we're going to have plenty of it. So, yeah, you know, you want to know how big the ocean tides are on, you know, one of the other planets. Well, there you go. You know, you'll be able to find it. I've just been looking into getting um, one of those Haynes manuals. (laughs) Uh, I've I've already got one for the space shuttle and I've just released one for the Saturn V and I'm thinking of getting it because it looks a really good book that is neat that they've gone into that kind of territory I love it they also have like a Klingon bird of prey and stuff like that yeah they got I know they've got a couple for Star Trek Uh, they've got a TARDIS (laughs) I'm not too sure if they've gone down the Star Wars route they've got a few Star Trek ones and they're they're so good there's so, so much detail in them Mm-hmm. I really love them. The, the space shuttle one is awesome. I mean, it, it's, it goes back to the original designs, and some of the designs for the space shuttle are weird-looking things, but you can kind of see <laughs> where they got the idea for, like, stealth bombers and things mm-hmm. <laughs> from these designs. But there's a couple in there that I, I think, hang on a moment, you've got a booster and they're sticking the shuttle on top of the booster in, instead of having it strapped to the side of a fuel mm-hmm. tank. And I'm thinking, well, that's what we've been saying. Don't have it on the side, have it on the top, because yeah. it makes sense. And I thought, no, they ditched that idea and went for that instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just opens your mind, considering how many parts there actually are involved with, as I said, it was the most complex machine ever built, which it was. Mm-hmm. And you just think how many people actually worked on those, that that fleet of of spacecraft was unbelievable. And you can understand why um, when Richard Garriott actually said when when he came on the show about the reason for having so many different NASA facilities spread about the country was to make the most out of employment. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just, all oh, right, everyone's got to move to Houston, everyone's got to move to Florida. Spread them out around the country, and there's your workforce. Right. You, you can read that in, you can read into that in the books. It was, it's, it's not just a, a strip down of what the, the shuttle was like to build. It's kind of like a history of NASA itself, but behind the scenes, through the eyes of people that actually worked on these projects. And and that's what I like about them the most. If, if you haven't seen one of these manuals, people, have a look at them. You go on Amazon, um, most of the Haynes manuals, you can um, uh, have a little looky inside the book beforehand, so you get an idea of what it's about. They're really worth 
uh, a little look. Um, I, I'm trying to think what ones there are for spacecraft. I know there's one for the lunar lander. I think there might be one for the Apollo Command modules. Yeah, um, Apollo, yeah there, there's, there's, there's Apollo 11, there's Apollo 13. Mm-hmm. The space station, the ISS, is there. Mm-hmm. The Mars rovers, Soyuz. That might be an interesting one, actually. They're having fun with that. Oh, the SR-71. Oh. <laughs> I love that. Plan. Voyager 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Hubble, Lunar Rover. Oh, man, they've got a lot. USS Enterprise, Millennium Falcon. They do have Star Wars. Ah, I figured if there was going to be any Star Wars ship they would do, it would have to be that one. And sure enough, there it is. <laughs> Hardcover, 18 bucks on Amazon Prime. Ooh. Works I out. might have to do some clicky-clicky. Works out about the same here, actually. I think it's about 18 pounds <laughs> for them here. Oh, Death Star. Oh, they got one for the Death Star. They got they? one for the Death Star. 22 wow. bucks. Yeah. This podcast is not being brought to you by Haynes or Amazon. <laughs> Although, if they want to send us some books, that's fine. I, fine. I'm fine with that. That would actually be cool. <laughs> hey, Haynes, yeah, you want to send us some stuff to, for us to review? We'll do it. Yeah, that would be cool. That really would be cool. Whatever happened to that stage one assembly piece that SpaceX recovered last year? Uh, I know. I heard a couple of things, actually. Well, I can tell you for a fact what happened to it. They're not sending it up in space. It is now actually at the facilities at their main headquarters out in Hawthorne, California. It's standing right out there proudly in front of their headquarter building. I can see them making a rocket garden. That that is like a really awesome garden gnome. (laughs) You know, (laughs) some people have concrete lions. We have the first rocket ever recovered you know, well, at least in that method, you know, in the history of the planet, that that's pretty damn cool. I mean, it's the same with the dragon capsule, though, isn't it? The first one is just hovering above the uh, control room in Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. You know, they kept it as it was. They didn't clean it up. It's there with all the scorch marks on it and and everything. Yeah. Well, same thing with the Falcon 9. If you look at it, it definitely looks all scorched and so forth up at the top. You know, from obviously the the separation and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's just proudly standing out there. So if you wanted to, if you happen to be in that area, that's not a mock-up. That's the real thing that they're standing out there. Rosetta had spent over two years at Comet 67P Kuryumov-Jarosimenko. But her time there was already coming to an end. She had made millions of measurements and by now knew the comet inside out. She had taken photos from all angles, collected dust grains, and sampled the gases in the comet's atmosphere, especially water vapor, which was not quite the same as water on Earth. She had measured the gravity of the comet, the magnetic field in its surroundings, and how the comet interacts with the solar wind. During the two years, Rosetta had monitored how the comet changed as they moved closer to the sun and then away again. With all this information, scientists back home had learned many things about how comets formed and evolved. They also established that comets were made of the dusty and icy material left over after the planets were formed, and so they contained some of the oldest and best-preserved material from the birth of our solar system. 
Rosetta had made even more remarkable discoveries. She found ingredients that were crucial for the origin of life on Earth. Perhaps comets had helped seed the Earth with these important ingredients when our planet was still very young. Scientists would definitely be busy analyzing Rosetta's findings for decades. Her mission had been a huge success. After a long search, she had even managed to find the strange place where Philae had ended up, fast asleep in a dark corner of the comet. But now, once again far from the sun, Rosetta was not generating as much power and soon would not have enough to carry out her investigations. She could go back to sleep right away, but instead decided to undertake one last ambitious challenge. She was going to follow in Philae's footsteps and land on the comet. Rosetta was tired after 12 and a half years traveling through space, but she was very excited about her last tasks. She would finally see up close some of the amazing sights she had been observing from a distance for the past two years. And she'd get to sample the comet's gases closer than she had ever dared to go before. It would not be easy, but the experts back home had everything figured out and the date was set. Rosetta would be targeting a really interesting place on the head of the comet. She wasn't going to be able to talk to Earth ever again once she was on the comet's surface. After all, she was never designed to land. So she would have to send back her last images and data as quickly as possible before saying her final goodbyes. Even though her incredible journey was nearly complete, she knew that just like the other comet explorers that had gone before her, the legacy of her amazing mission would live on forever. That's pretty much how the mission ended. Well, it was quite a hard landing on the, on the surface of the comet. But that um, wasn't the last video, though. Uh, no. But the last video, really, you'd have to see it for effect. Uh, yeah, so that's quite an emotional one as well. Um, oh, my God, yes. <laughs> you, you will be holding back tears if you haven't seen that last one yet. Yeah, it, it makes you think. Um, I'm not going to say much about it. Uh, I'll put a link to them, uh, all of the videos in the uh, in, in the show notes. That, that That's not all of the... What you heard there is not the whole thing because there is a lot of pieces that are very visual. Um, mm -hmm. So it's no point in having them on an audio podcast. And it's adorable uh, to watch. I mean, it's a cartoon made for kids, so they made it as cute as they could. And as it mentioned in the clip there that uh, Rosetta's high-resolution camera managed to find the Philae Lander Mm -hmm. which was wedged in a dark crack on the uh, 67P. And when you look at those photographs, you can see why he wasn't able to... So it's a he. It wasn't able to... <laughs> to... Uh, send out signals, because, I mean, it was quite covered, wasn't it? It's kind of got a, a lid, if you like, mm -hmm. on on the area where he was. And it was upside down with legs sticking out. And <laughs> yeah, that, that made complete sense once that, that photo was released. The angle was that when the orbiter came within 2.7 kilometers of the surface, quite close, 
Yeah, 2.7 kilometers. The resolution of the narrow angle camera was about five centimeters per pixel. Those, um, those are some amazing pictures on the way down. Mmm, weren't they just? The clarity on those was just phenomenal. I mean, I still remember the pictures of uh, when Philae was released, and you can gradually see him pulling away. And the first ones when they hit the surface, and you can see the where the legs were on the deck, uh, and that was just before it bounced, <laughs> which is really surprising that they got that data back and as much data as they got in that smaller space of time, they're going to be working on that for years. Oh, yeah. I mean, people think that you know, the data they get back is just what they release and the pictures. <laughs> they get ridiculous amounts of raw data, and it's going to take a long time for them to go through all of that. Yeah, it's going to keep people in work for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you've got people like Matt Taylor involved in it he's the uh, the Rosetta project um, specialist made famous for the shirts he wore oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is so passionate about the, the research that they're now doing based on the the data that they retrieved and, you know it's, it's not not over by a long chalk it's you know there's a lot to do a real lot to do but as I say he is really passionate about it and, and I'll show you how passionate he was that he, he's actually got a tattoo of Rosetta on his leg <laughs> so uh, yeah it meant a lot to him Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So I think that brings us to the end of this show, the first one of our third season of uh, of podcast. I hope that everyone who, who joined us from the, the World Space Week website likes what we do here, and you're welcome back anytime. John, it's always a, a pleasure to have you on board. It's glad to be back. We had a bit of a hiatus there, but we're back. We're ready to rock and roll. So that's, that really just leaves us to say thanks for listening, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. 
Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.